talking about today is first, we're going to talk about some of the common core features. Then we're going to talk about historical trends in psychopathy and the conceptualization to the modern day. Um, there's a lot of overlap. Psychopathies always existed. Are right, here, Jim. Good. So you're going to use this laptop. This is not working. All right. Okay, so yeah, the overview, we'll talk about the historical depiction of psychopathy throughout the years. I'll talk a little bit about the experimental findings of psychopathy, as well as the neurobiological correlates of psychopathy. Um, it's going to highlight, the presentation is also going to highlight some of the common misconceptions of the construct. Uh, it's a really big misnomer throughout uh, the media, and as well as psychology and psychiatry. And some methods that could be helpful from as a psychologist, but also potentially a police officer to detect a psychopath. And then we'll have a video example at the end. So what comes to mind when you hear a psychopath? There's, there's a lot of discussion and uh, about what it actually is. First, you're, you can talk about either the corporate psychopath, you know, the, the hotshot CEO. We think about the serial killer, such as like Ted Bundy. Uh, the frequent flyer, uh, the chronic offender, uh, the con artists such as Jordan Belfort off the Buffalo Wall Street, or um, Frank Abengale off Catch, you, Catch Me If You Can, uh, someone who's just really manipulative, full of themselves, and just fools everyone. Um, also, you know, we think of pop psychology TV shows. Uh, everyone thinks they have a good understanding of psychopathy just by watching these common TV shows, but actually there's much more to that. Um, and in fact, Hannibal is not really necessarily the typical psychopath because he actually exhibits a lot of philosophical insight and spontaneous thought, uh, which is not as typical with the common psychopath who may copy off of other people and use their ideas their own. So Robert Hare is huge in developing the construct of psychopathy. He was an experimental Canadian psychologist who worked in the prison systems and he interviewed a lot of inmates and he realized one of the things he found out was that they're very easy to talk with and he actually believed their stories. Until he actually reviewed the evidence, he realized he was fooled. So as a product of that, he developed something called the Hare Psychopathy Checklist. And I think he summarizes the psychopathy construct in uh, a very concise way in this paragraph. He says, psychopaths can be described as interspecies predators who use charm, manipulation, intimidation, and violence to control others satisfy their own selfish needs. Lack of conscience and feelings for others, they boldly take what they want and do as they please, violating social norms and uh, expecting that and expectations without the slightest guilt of regret. So, as you can tell, it, it's pretty... Uh, you can kind of tell what his opinions are on psychopaths. <laughs> I have a question. APD. So he uses the term intraspecies. So are there psychopaths of other species? <laughs> Chimpanzee psychopaths or something? I really cannot answer that. Uh, I am not a behavioral specialist. I imagine there are certain species that are more bold and charming. I don't know about charming. But <laughs> My dog's a psychopath. <laughs> you know, maybe just more cruel. I mean, there's examples where black bears, male black bears, you know, seek out victims instead of running away. So, 
maybe they could be psychopathic. I don't know. Just. So what's the importance of understanding the psychopathy construct? For one, we can better understand criminal behavior, um, and by understanding criminal behavior, we can predict recidivism if they're going to reoffend and recommit the crime, how likelihood they're going to. We can have a understanding of institutional adjustment, uh, whether they would be considered low, moderate, or high risk, and treatment considerations. And interestingly, those with antisocial personality disorder who aren't high in psychopathic traits uh, they're more amenable to treatment, where those who are high on psychopathy, they're actually more likely to recidivate. They're, they're not amenable. So they might just learn the skills from therapy, just be more manipulative and psychopathic. Um, there was something I also learned at American Psychology Law Society that if you actually put people who are considered high risk, with high psychopathic traits, with low-risk offenders, the low-risk offenders are more likely to recidivate. So it's actually better when you have high risk with high risk moderate risk with moderate risk, low risk with low risk, not just for safety issues, but to actually reduce the recidivism. Um, also, you can understand those with psychopathic traits or deemed psych psychopaths are increased risk for substance use, gambling, or sexually acting out. Some of these more acting out, externalizing behaviors. Uh, they're more like, uh, we can have a better understanding of white collar crime, um, which arguably they're the more quote unquote socialized psychopaths. And also, I think having understanding, you can prevent victimization. If you understand the cycle of abuse, of how psychopaths lure their victims, they tend to groom, and they tend to reinforce them heavily, called love bombing, and then they tend to punish them. And because of this series of intermittent reinforcement, of reward and punishment, it's very hard for the victim to get out of a relationship than if it was just always bad the whole time. So I, I think it has a lot of treatment implications for the victims. if you can understand these social predators. So when you're thinking about the core features of psychopathy, I think it's important to think of it of a clusters of syndromes, not just one trait, because sure, some people might be impulsive or disinhibited, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a psychopath. Some people, you know, might have less empathy, but that does not mean they're a psychopath. But when you have like these core features, to a significant degree outside the normal population, that's when you can clinically diagnose that someone is a psychopath. And some co common core features are persistent antisocial behavior, meaning you know criminality, acting out, breaking the law, uh, impaired empathy and not feeling guilt, uh, feeling being bold, which is different than fearlessness. Bold is basically approach, and fearlessness means they don't avoid. So bold, they're socially potent, but they're not really afraid of much. They don't have much anxiety. And they also tend to be disinhibited or impulsive. They tend to have grandiose opinions about themselves, not in the sense that someone's like hypomanic or manic and bipolar disorder, because their thought process aren't necessarily disorganized, but they're calculating. It's more of a belief system that they own it, they know they're awesome. So psychopathy has always existed throughout the years. In the first illustration, you'll see Cain Killing Abel, which is a biblical scripture. In the middle, we have Genghis Khan. And on the right, we had Vlad the Impaler. Um, so this construct has always existed, and we kind of see this in modern-day media as well as historical texts like Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, mythical figures such as Medusa. Um, in Greek mythology, if you look at her, you'll, you'll 
turn of the stone kind of depictions of the prototypical or archetypical psychopath. So the, the early precursors included uh, Pritchard. Uh, he mentioned the definition of more insanity or more in morally deficient. It's basically have unremarkable intellect and ability to reason. And then Kraft Ebbing in 1904 says that psychopaths, that he defined them as societal savages who only motivated by their aggressive needs. So very selfish individuals. Uh, they are also defined as swindlers by Kraftlin in 1915. Uh, they're born as criminals, criminals rather than a product of their environment. They're just pathological liars, impulse driven, and most vicious of all offenders. And what's interesting about the pathological liars component, because there's research today that suggests that they may lie not just for instrumental gains, but it may be a cognitive style, just how they approach the world. They might not necessarily be lying just for a game, just how they interact, just for no reason. It doesn't necessarily have to be instrumental, it can sometimes just be impulsive. So in the 19th century, Herbie Cleckley, uh, in The Mask of Sanity, he was a renowned psychiatrist who worked in uh, the institutions. Uh, he summarized psychopathies. The psycho psychopath talks entertainingly and is brilliant and charming, but nonetheless carries disaster lightly in each hand. And one of the things he noticed about individuals who were highly psychopathic, he didn't necessarily define them as criminalistic, just very charming. They came across as socially competent, but they're impulsive. You know, sometimes he would actually confuse them with staff because they had it so well together, at least on the exterior, which the mask of sanity, that's what it represents. So they have it all together, but underneath, you know, it's all facade. And they have a lot of underlying issues, unlike others, other psychiatric patients who, who would, the symptoms were obvious. Um, he says the psychopath is capable of conceding behind a perfect memory of normal emotion, fine intelligence, social responsibility, but yet have a grossly disabled and irresponsible personality. And then in his book, he talks about three criterion-based observations of the psychiatric patients. Uh, he has a positive adjustment indicators. Uh, so this goes into more of the factor one components, which I'll go into later, which is they're intelligent, socially adept, they don't have delusions, they have low fear and anxiety, and it's negatively associated with suicide, meaning they're less likely to attempt suicide. Uh, some of the behaviors, meaning how they act, is they tend to be irresponsible. He knows they're sexually promiscuous, uh, and they also don't really learn from experiments or punishment. Um, and he also looked at their emotional component. They tend to be socially detached. And what he means by socially detached, I wouldn't necessarily say that's like a schizoid personality. A schizoid personality has no interest in socializing, where a psychopathic individual um, according to different models of personality, they tend to be more extroverted. They, they tend to be the life of the party and they're more extroverted and bold. Um, they don't really have guilt, remorse, or shame. They kind of just move on. Uh, they don't really react strongly uh, to things and they tend to be very self-absorbed and they only look out for themselves. They don't really have loyalty towards others. I have a question. This is Niels Rosamond. That sure. also fits with... Um or does that also fit with being embarrassed? I've been told that people who are psychopathic don't really get embarrassed very easily or at all. 
yeah, I, I would be researched that they're less likely to get embarrassed. They kind of just go with the flow. They don't really have, like when we get embarrassed, uh, you may dissociate for a second, but then move on. Like I had an example when I walked uh, this Friday graduation, uh, my mentor put on the hood incorrectly and I got a little embarrassed and then I like dissociated, like, oh, I gotta walk this way. A psychopath would probably just roll with him, like whatever, because they don't really have that autonomic response. The feeling of being flustered. So you're contending that you're not a psychopath. I am not That's a psychopath. Gotcha. No. I'm interested in opposite of everything I am. So I have a question as well, and I don't know if you know the answer to this one, but it says that there's low-level suicide, but yet they're very risk-taking, very on the edge. That doesn't seem to I guess match you, up, does it? I mean, I guess you have to look at the intention. If they decide to go skydiving and someone catch them with a parachute because they're fearless or bold, they're not, they don't have in their mind that they, they want to die, right? So there might be reckless behaviors where they die, but post-mortem, if you do a psychological autopsy, you know, you want to opine that the reason was suicide. This is with psychopaths and not with antisocial personalities. So I think that yeah. is a higher with, with antisocial personality disorder, just to be clear, psychopathy is a subset of antisocial personality disorder. In white-collar psychopaths, there's less antisocial, there's more histrionic or narcissistic. But with antisocial, the, the, the criticism in the current DSM-5, it's really based on external behaviors. And it's heavily environmental influenced, where psychopathy is more biologically influenced. Um, so yeah, it, those with antisocial personality disorder, they tend to alienate others because of criminality, and they do feel depressed, and they do have abandonment issues. So they, they can be more likely to suicide because how they alienate others. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Cleckley's work, the criticism was he didn't really talk about the violence that they imposed on the others. So in 1946, Benjamin Cartman, I believe was a psychologist, he broke it down into two factors. There's primary psychopathy and secondary psychopathy. And there's even argument whether secondary psychopathy is even psychopathy at all. Because secondary psychopathy more captures the antisocial personality disorder, where primary psychopathy captures more of the biological components. Effective functioning, meaning their emotional functioning, is more linked to the neurobiology or the genetics. Where secondary psychopathy, how they act out, their, their antisocial criminality, and failure to learn from experience could be to environmental upbringing or being raised in an environment where there's a lot of crime. So yeah, on the right, I, got, I have Patrick Bateman, uh, American Psycho. In 1964, McCord and McCord, an on the criminal mind, he defined them as emotionally cold, supposed to detach, dangerous and aggressive, unlike Cleckley, motivated by, by rage, then fear and anxiety. And this is true in my work in uh, under supervision work uh, evaluating people personality testing. One of the key indicators I notice in psychopathy is they have that low fear and anxiety, like near the floor. So like they endorse no items, but they would tend to be a little higher in aggression, you know, whether it's reactive aggression or instrumental. They tend to be socially dominant and bold and just aggressive by nature. So they are quick to anger, whether it's reactive or instrumental. And that's one of the negative emotions they do experience. It's anger. Anger, yes. And they tend to be predatory. So there's a misnomer. Uh, I, a lot of people ask this. What's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? 
Uh, sociopathy is not the common nomenclature used today. They just use psychopathy. Uh, but how it has been defined was sociopathy is more a product of environment, where psychopathy is more due to temperamental differences in how they're born. Cortical unarousal, meaning, you know, they they have low stimulation at baseline, which is why they seek higher stimulation to self-regulate. Um, and I, I think there's actually, correct me wrong, I'm not, not a psychiatrist, but when I was reading that the psychopathic individuals who take stimulants such as methamphetamine or Adderall, I believe it increases more dopamine in the frontal lobes than those who don't score high in psychopathies. So it's more reinforcing. So there is some argument, are they afraid of punishment or are they just so drawn to reward? Or is it dual model process theory? Um, so yeah, psychopaths, they can't really internalize social norms where sociopaths are a product of the norms around them. Okay, so this a longer slide. So the problem with antisocial personality disorder, it's a very broad definition, okay? Uh, it has seven criteria and if you look at it, it, it mostly kind of measures behavior, aside from lack of remorse and deceitfulness. But the problem with this is it's categorical, meaning everyone might have this to a degree. There might be times that someone's impulsive, right? Where psychopathy is more of a heterogeneous construct, meaning it's a continual model, you know, more or less. For antisocial, it doesn't really look at that. Um, so psychopathy is more narrow and specific and more pathological than ASPD. And it captures more of the boldness, low anxiety, and the social potency or the, the charming nature of the psychopath. Or those with antisocial personality disorder, they likely can have anxiety disorders, and I can see it quite a bit. Or they can also exhibit paranoia as well. So a little bit of statistics, 60 to 80% of prisoners are in, people in prison have antisocial personality disorder versus 15 to 25 percent are diagnosed as a psychopath. And I'll go into how a licensed psychologist would do that later. Whereas four to five percent of the general population have antisocial personality disorder. However, I looked at more recent epidemiology research that showed one to two percent. Yeah, that seems very high. That yeah. would be a scary be world. Scared. Yeah, yeah. Don't be afraid. Yeah, I, I, especially if you're ruling out people who are in prison. Mm -hmm. Right. It's really high. Yeah. Right. So I, I thought the four, I read four to five, but I recently just looked at this. It's like one to two is more the general. That seems more mm -hmm. close. And that's antisocial, not yeah. psychopathic. Yeah, psychopathic is 0.5 to 1%. That means if someone took the hair psychopathy checklist and it's a very extensive interview, you got to be trained on it. The score of 30, most people score like a one or two or zero. Only 1% will get 30. I had a question. Sure. Ben Walters, say, please. Are there people who are diagnosed as psychopathic that don't have antisocial personality disorder? Yeah. It, it, I mean, some may have more of the narcissistic personality. It's off, also to the discretion of the psychologist and the referral question. So if there's like a referral question, how would this antisocial personality diagnosis answer the psycho-legal question, you know, in, in relevance to the case, maybe the narcissism is more relevant. So it, it's, there's a lot of overlap between narcissism, antisocial, 
histrionic. It's all part of the cluster B personality pathology. So Robert Hare developed the psychopathy checklist in 1991, and it was revised in 2003. He divided these 20 items, which a lot of mental health professionals have used this checklist incorrectly. There have been people who just give the checklist and just willy-nilly circle zero, one, or two, but really it requires extensive training in a semi-structure interview and record review. So it should not be used as a misuse of science, but this is freely available online, these items. So he, he looked at factor one, which is more of the interpersonal effective components, meaning how do they relate with one another and how do they feel? And factor two is basically how they act, you know, uh, he defined it as chronically unstable and antisocial lifestyle. So he looked at psychopaths as those who are super originally charming, make good impressions, arrogant. They are prone to being bored and need extra stimulation. They pathologically lie, manipulative. They, they don't feel guilty. They actually impoverish their emotions where they don't really get a lot of emotions. Um, even though externally they may seem like they have quite a bit of emotions, but internally it could just be a facade. Uh, parasitic lifestyle means they may live off of someone else, uh, you know, in kind of just, uh, how do I define that? They're, uh, they could just be living off someone's life savings or something rather than working. Um, poor behavioral controls, which kind of closely related impulsivity, uh, just kind of aggressive. Promiscuous sexual behavior. Uh, lack of long, realistic, long-term goals. They tend to be nomadic and go on the whim. Uh, irresponsible, they don't learn from, uh, failure to accept responsibility or learn from punishment. Many short-term flings or relationships. A history of conduct disorder is also an indicator of psychopathy. Uh, Refication of conditional release, so they may be denied early release. Uh, and this contract's also really important, I forgot to mention the first slide is with these assessments, you can determine whether or not should be deemed early release or not, depending on their risk level. And someone who is psychopathic as well as antisocial, you know, it's probably better they're not let out in the community. Um, probably better? <laughs> it's, it's definitely not better. <laughs> so criminal versatility, they, uh, they tend to be con artists, they uh, run a life of crime. So this is all statistics jargon, so just ignore that. But that, that two-factor approach later in 2005 was broke down in four-factor approaches. So even though all these contracts had shared relationships, it just shows with like the science how much we can break this down. So factor one, which I showed in the last slide, was broken down in two facets, interpersonal and effective. And the higher the number, the more correlated it is. All four of those circles are correlated with one another, but they're separated, okay? So the effective is more how do they feel about the world, and the lifestyle is basically how they act in the world. Um, and antisocial is more linked to criminality or criminal behavior. And what's interesting is the interpersonal component is more in line with uh, neurobiology where the effective emotional component, those who lack empathy or guilt, it shows that those who are exposed to early childhood trauma, they, it's kind of muted. And I always think about the show Dexter. I don't know if anyone ever watched that, you know, where the scene where he's an infant and he views his, uh, 
mother getting killed by his father. You know, it kind of arrested his empathic development. So that's just a colloquial example from common television. You mean it's worse when you're abused? It's like worse when your ability abuse. to empathize becomes worse if you yeah abuse. yeah gets the empathy gets lower yes, um, and then more recent you can break it down into three constructs: boldness, meanness, and disinhibition. Boldness captures more someone who is highly bold, uh, low in anxiety. They tend to be sensation seeking or venturing them some this. And I don't really know how that's different than excitement seeking. I have to look how they define that. Uh, and meanness is more someone who is uh, manipulative, they're cruel, instrumentally aggress aggressive means they plan to be aggressive on someone else to meet their goals. Uh, this inhibition is basically impulsivity and how quick they are to anger. Um, so looking at how this is correlated with the Harris Psychopathy Checklist, which is the gold standard for psychologists, Boldness and meanness construct predicts it the most, with boldness being the most significant. That means if you run an analysis, what captures psychopathy most is the boldness. Uh, disinhibition captures more of the factor two or antisocial lifestyle components, which is more of the impulsive nature of the antisocial personality. So I have a question. This is Niels Rosenbaum. The, they have emotionally sort of shallow, right? But anger is, they feel strong. So they might not feel love strongly at all, right. or at all, but they'll feel anger just as strongly as anybody else. It, they just won't last as long. It'll be fleeting, and they may get upset about someone coming, cutting them off, right, when they're driving, but they might not feel angry if, like, their father was treated wrongly or something like that. Maybe if their child was treated wrongly, they may be upset, but that, because that's an extension of themselves, rather an empathic concern for their child. Does that make sense? Yes. So yeah, they, 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 the profiles do indicate that they do have elevated anger, and that's the only component of negative emotion, but not depression, not anxiety. Um, so now we'll talk about white-collar psychopaths, and I think it's important to talk about how these people aren't really studied as much. Uh, there's not as much research into this population, probably because they don't willingly go out there, or also they don't get caught, you know, they're pretty smart. Uh, a lot of the instruments are actually based in correctional centers and normed on that. So it's hard to kind of extra extrapolate that information to white collar psychopaths. Uh, so they tend to have a higher IQ, little risk of legal penalties. Uh, so the unsuccessful psychopaths tend to be those who are incarcerated. They tend to have less privileged backgrounds, low IQ, and much higher risk of penalties uh, because they can't afford uh, the best lawyer. Uh, Three to 4% have been cited for senior positions. They tend to have the same traits, manipulative, narcissistic, low anxiety, bold, uh, recreational drug use, um, you know, such as like cocaine. Um, they also use predatory bullying where they might just bully someone, lower them just for fun, um, and also instrumental bullying to achieve personal goals. So they divide and conquer. I have a question. Sorry, Niels Rosenbaum. Three to four percent have been cited. Three to four percent of all people with. I don't understand that percentage of what cited the senior positions. I I would have to oh. review that. Okay, sorry, Doctor Rosenbaum, aren't you in a senior position? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I always have my thoughts. I don't know if I'm in that three or four, but that's 96%. So I read this, and I thought it was kind of interesting. So what are some techniques why college psychopaths use? And I, I see this also when I did clinical work with someone who's in an abusive relationship. It, it kind of went similar pattern where they would first enter into the business or relationship and they would use charm or superior social skills to, to obtain employment. They may say what they're confident at. They may talk to the senior uh, senior position and talk about similarities and what they like, just to put on the charm. Then they tend to assess and observe others who are who can be useful, who's the pawn and who's the patron. And then through manipulation, they may portray positive information about themselves and negative disinformation about others. So they gossip. And they knew, use a network of pawns they groom to support their agenda. So there may be people on equal level, parallel level, or below them who buys into their agenda. Um, then they will use confrontation. When someone confronts them, they will assassinate the character of someone else to maintain their agenda. And one will be discarded as a pawn because they're no longer used, or they would be used as a patron to get what they want. So it's all game strategy. It's all manipulation. And then once they rise to the top or they send to the top, they would discard the patron's role. So they won't really validate the person above them as much or groom them as much. And they will be on the top of the ladder and they would take power and prestige from themselves and be very selfish and authoritative in their leadership styles. So key differences, males and females. Uh, so both share core features of psychopathy, you know, the meanness, boldness, impulsivity. Males are more likely to use physical aggression to achieve their goals, while women more likely to use subtle relational aggression to achieve their goals. So subtle manipulation. I mean, if anyone ever seen like the movie Mean Girls, you know, like the Regina George, just subtle manipulation, divide and conquer, if you will. So men typically are more likely to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, where women are more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. Um, it's also important to note that women are also highly likely to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, but they're also likely to have overlap with those other two, which are more gender biased towards females. And for, for the reason being, it could just be uh, culture and how we uh, perceive these gender roles. Oh yeah, there was one thing I wanted to mention on this slide too. Um, also with this too, the, the evidence is unclear of recidivism for female psychopaths. Uh, you know, sometimes it shows that they're more likely to compared to antisocial, sometimes it doesn't. With males, those with psychopathic features are more likely to recidivate. And the female psychopaths are more likely going to be victims of uh, abuse, where male psychopaths not as much. And female psychopath, psychopathic individuals may have more emotional liability, meaning their emotions may fluctuate up and down, and they may have more self-harming attempts uh, because they, they feel miserable because of the borderline personality features on top of it, or as a manipulation strategy or a combination of both. So they are a little bit different and the female psychopath is definitely uh, more misunderstood than the male one.
So the neurological basis of psychopathy. Uh, so there's less activity in the orbital frontal cortex, which has to do with part of the brain where you plan your day and you make decisions. Less activity in the amygdala, which is the center, the fear center of the brain. That's basically how you process fear. Those with anxiety disorders have heightened activity in the amygdala. And sometimes they may, those with anxiety disorders have less activity in the orbital frontal cortex until they gain therapy because they always process, they, they intertwine the orbital frontal cortex and amygdala. You have your logic brain calming down your emotional brain. And with psychopaths, there's, they actually show less white matter connecting both parts of those brains. Um, I'm not sure if that's the same though for high functioning psychopaths. I, I would think there'd be more connectivity there if they're able to get what they want. Um, they have less stress hormone cortisol, uh, lower levels of serotonin, which I thought was interesting. Um, they tend to have higher levels of testosterone levels, which is associated with dominance. Is that including women psychopaths? Yeah, I, it would just it, in general. It didn't specifically. That'd be interesting. I don't know. Um, so primary psychopaths, like, you know, the biological inclinations, lower daily oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding chemical. So they don't necessarily feel that bonding. You know, it's kind of arrested. Interestingly, pupil dilation is an indicator of emotional arousal, right? If you're excited about something, you're in love, your pupils dilated. When you look at the pupil dilation of those who are psychopathic compared to the control sample when exposed to negative stimuli images, uh, like violence um, or, you know, that are disturbing in nature, there's no difference in the size dilation, which I thought there would be. So as much as, you know, you can read up on the subject, there's always more to learn. So experimental findings. Uh, and Lincoln and Harris work in the prison. He found out that when this was back in the day where you can do experiments <laughs> on those in prison and to good old days. <laughs> good days. So, uh, so what he found out is he did a paradigm where he said, I'm going to shock you in 30 seconds. And he sets a timer then. And I don't, I don't believe they got shocked. I, I can't remember. But he says, you're going to get shocked in 30 seconds. Those who weren't high in psycho the psychopathy, they had a higher sweat response. And those who, the, the higher in psychopathy had a lower sweat response, I'm sorry. Those lower in psychopathy, they tended to sweat more and their heart was racing more. So, which shows, you know, psychopaths aren't really as afraid. They actually didn't exhibit their response until like the last second. So, effective processing. Psychopaths do not react, do not react differently to negative or neutral stimuli, so such as words or images, compared to non-psychopaths. So I'm going to go ahead and do a little, little experiment right here, okay? Where I'm going to show you some pictures and I'm going to show you some images. Am I getting shocked? You are. <laughs> <laughs> so how is everyone's reaction when they see this? Neutral. Neutral. Okay. Neutral. Calming. Yes. Calming. Mm. Stressful. Mm -hmm. Stressful. Uh, Controllably. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Average day. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to show you some words. Good. Mm -hmm. Trap. 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 Oh, gosh. <laughs> 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 
Neutral. Neutral. I love Lent. Yeah, I would have put that in. I was definitely thinking anger, man. I mean, uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So what they found out in that study was psychopaths who saw the diff the negative dalliance images or the words, they didn't have a reaction. It was just neutral, just like you saw a lamp or as you saw the tree or the happy face. There's no difference, but there's actually future research that proposed that actually against that, and including here, that they're able to turn on empathy on and off to exhibit these emotions. How you would test that, I have no idea how. So there's still more to be learned about that. So other causes of psychopathy, it's primarily biological temporally based. That's a key way of finding. Abuse and trauma is more predictive of the anti-social lifestyle components, but not the core effective interpersonal components. But actually, it is more predictive of the effective components, the mutant, the empathy. Remember earlier when I talked about it's broken down in two factors, but then it was broken down to four facets. So interpersonal components can actually be abuse or trauma because they might have learned a manipulative lifestyle through modeling their parents, but it's also biologically inclined. So I, I messed that slide up there. So what is what psychopathy is not? It's not necessarily antisocial personality disorder. Even though there's common features, psycho, psychopathy is more rare. They tend to be more socially potent, bold, fearless, and interpersonally dominant. In fact, there's been some research that I read that those with higher psychopathic traits, they tend to stand closer to people and invade their space. They don't really have the mirror neurons that say, hey, I'm getting a little too close, right? Those with psychosis on the hand, it sounds like psychopathy, but it's different uh, because they tend to be more fixated on a delusion. They may have auditory visual hallucinations or any lingering depressive anxiety symptoms. Uh, they also, their thought processes are more disorganized, unlike the, the, the psychopathic individual. Psychopaths, on the other hand, you know, I mentioned, you know, they tend to be more calculating and they tend to be more instrumentally aggressive to achieve their goals and not as disorganized. Autism spectrum disorder. The reason why I include this because the shared component is the lack of empathy. The difference is those with autism, they lack something called cognitive empathy or a theory of mind. So they may feel upset about something when someone is upset, but they can't articulate or identify in words why they feel that way. If you tell them, I feel upset that you did that, they may feel upset. Right? There's a good show on Netflix. It's called Atypical. that talks about a teenager kid with autism. And he didn't understand why his girlfriend he broke up with was so upset. And the dad told him, it's because I think she's upset because you broke up with her. Then he felt terrible. He didn't have the theory of mind to assess the situation socially. Um, where, where, on the other hand, the psych psychopathic individuals, they tend to have cognitive, they tend to have a good theory of mind, which is why they can manipulate people. But they don't have that emotional component, so they don't really care. So they basically can, see, they can uh, play the strings, but they don't feel the music, so to speak. Uh, So is there such thing as a pro-social psychopath? Does anyone have any thoughts? Is it good to have some of these traits? Yeah, I think some of them are adaptive. Sure. Pro-social, I'm sorry. Pro-social, 
like good, like yeah. someone instead of being the criminal psychopath, someone who has these qualities and use them for good. Yeah, I would imagine the church. There are some some jobs where being detached from might help you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. In some way, and change that earlier. I should say psychopathic traits can be associated with leadership or creative personality. So, yeah, so they can be someone who's psychopathic. They might not go necessarily by the status quo if they see it's wrong. They might challenge and go against the grain of conformity. Um, due to the high boldness and low anatomic arousal or fear, if they have high intelligence, they can make a good surgeon, right? A fire pilot, NASCAR driver. Um, and they can make a good spy, which interestingly, you know, if you watch the James Bond movies, they depict like James Bond, very loyal to his country, you know, they follow all the protocol. But really, I looked at some of the research of psychologists who interview like these uh, secret agents, is they have to be flexible with the rules because due to these core features, like such as low fear and high boldness, they break rules quite a bit. So they have to be pretty flexible with the standard because it's in their nature kind of to go against the grain. But they're also a valuable asset in that domain of expertise. Well, I have a question. So you're saying one can be diagnosed as a psychopath, but do good things in the world or well, contribute, or you have some of these traits. Yeah, I'm not quite there. I would say the traits. It's a stretch to say those diagnosed fully. I don't think there's enough research. If I had, I had to say modestly. Um, and there's a difference. Antisocial traits, like I said, that's supposed to be psychopathic traits. Yeah. So I really, I really want to know. Um, I would think being that far off the bell curve would have inherent problems, even if you are good at your job. Um, so, uh, so positive upbringing with pro-social psychopaths, they can be a productive factor for the factor two antisocial, two antisocial lifestyle components, but not the factor one interpersonal components. So they may be good citizens, but they might not make the best partners due to their neurologically based relationship patterns. You know, they might be insensitive to their partner. They might be prone to, you know, infidelity. They may violate social social norms, but not necessarily illegal norms or legal norms. And there's an example where there was this one guy, I can't remember call his name, he was a psychologist who studied the brain images of psychopaths. And his family lineage, lineage showed a history of a lot of people committing murder and crime. So he looked at his brain, and allegedly he has a brain of a psychopath. But he said that he had a good upbringing, but he says he just really was not that caring. He could be kind of manipulative. And if people were going to a funeral, he'd be like, this is boring. Like, I'd rather go out and party or drink. Violating social norm, not necessarily legal. Right. So there's some skepticism among academics, so possibly due to personal bias, which understandably, people who are inherently this way, it seems so against humanity, right? So in other things, there's not enough research, and maybe these successful psychopaths are just smart and do not get caught or don't participate in this research. It's going to be a selection bias. So how do psychologists assess for psychopathy? I'm sure some law enforcement does this as well. Um, you know, you have to do due diligence to look at your records beforehand. 
So one of the things I look for in history of substance abuse is a predictor of antisocial or psychopathy. Chronic unemployment or switching jobs quickly. Uh, if they underachieved in school because they were bored, um, they didn't find it interesting. A nomadic lifestyle, did they move around a lot? Why did they move around? Did they burn bridges? Are they trying to hide their identity so people don't talk about them, so they can start new, start fresh? I also look at uh, their criminal legal history, any history of conduct disorder, uh, their pattern of relationships, and why they decide to engage in infidelity, I think is important. Um, collateral records, uh, inconsistency in what they report according to the records because psychopaths lie. Uh, crimes that involve violence are deceptive in nature, such as fraud. Uh, psychiatric and medical records are always important, no matter who you interview. Uh, some collateral interviews, maybe family members or significant relationships, to see if a pattern converges how they describe this person. Employers, if possible, if it's a pre-employment, was this person shady? Were they written up? Why were they written up? What happened? Look to see if they describe this person as unreliable or colloquially two-faced or manipulative. So behavior observations, what am I going to see? First I have charming, then I have hostile. You just never really know. You know, if they really think that I'm an authority figure, I'm not gonna buy their stuff, they'll be hostile with me. If they view themselves as really confident and smarter, I'm not really challenging them, I'm leaving more open ending, they may be charming. Uh, they may be likely socially fluent, uh, they may inconsistently report by the records or even during the interview. Um, they may minimize the crime, they may even blame others. Oh, that person deserved it because they don't recognize what they did was wrong. Maybe intellectually they know, but emotionally like, ah, oh, that law applies to the sheep and not me. Unwavering eye contact, especially if they're trying to dominate, their eye contact may have to be more intense. Um, and because of that, there's a thing called countertransference is basically how I would feel interacting with the person. I may feel it in my gut where I feel a little bit scared, you know, like that, the hair on the back of my neck. It's like, okay, there's something off about it. I don't know. And that's why it's important in my field to consult with supervisors and colleagues and take note. It's not just me having a bad day or how I describe it. Other clinicians will agree. There's anti-authority attitudes. See if they have problems against police, the laws in general. If they're grandiose, but not necessarily manic, uh, just arrogant about themselves. Uh, they also may try to discredit my confidence of evaluators. Like, oh man, you're ridiculous. Why are you asking these questions? Like, how long did you go to school? Maybe using profanity and things of that nature. So that's important. The interview and behavior observation is important, but it's also important to look at the science and the personality testing. So what I would do is I would usually give a raw bone measure to assess all of your personality, such as MMPI2RF. It's a 338-question true-false test, and I would look at specifically low levels of fear of anxiety, high levels of aggression, and interpersonal dominance. Risk assessment measures, such as the HCR20, which it's escaping my mind what that stands for, but it looks at like historical and static factors would predict risk. The Harris Psychopathy Checklist, which is a semi-structured interview. It's like 130 questions, open-ended. I would start to see a theme that converges with the interview of their history, with the testing, with what other people say, and then I can conclude that this person is a psychopath. So tie it all together, yeah, I want to synthesize all the data and the comprehensive report. 
It's important to consider multiple hypotheses, highlight evidence that comes together, but also data that's inconsistent is important too. They could just be messing with me due to their psychopathic nature, and that's just evidence that they're being manipulative, right? Especially if other collateral interviews or family members around them say that. That just gives me more evidence that the report is inconsistent because of X, Y, Z. Um, it's important to consult with colleagues uh, to minimize my own personal bias and any blind spots because it's very easy to miss. And after you do these interviews, they're like three hours. Like, oh, I should have asked that. It's very common. So I think we're out of time. It's like four minute video. video. Do you all want to watch it? Sure. Yeah. All right. So this is Paul Bernardo. I just did a YouTube uh, psychopath interview. And uh, this is, he was a serial killer and I believe child molester in Canada. It's not breaking. It's no call. All right. So, that's it. any questions or anything? Let's see.